Welcome to another podcast from the Oxford International Centre for Publishing Studies. This talk was recorded on Tuesday the 1st of November 2011. Our guest speaker is Juliet Mitchell and the title of her talk is My Life as an Editor. The talk is introduced by Dr Sally Hughes. I would like to introduce Juliet Mitchell, who's our first speaker. Um, she was an editor at Penguin until quite recently, and during the course of her time there, she has worked with a number of well-known <coughs> authors, Sadie Smith, David Eggers, Alan Buckham, uh, Ali Smith, and Ian Sinclair. Um, and she's going to talk to us this evening about um, her work as an editor, and her talk is entitled, My Life as an Editor, Misconceptions, Mistakes and Rewards, and I will hand over right now to her. Juliet, thank you very much for coming. Great, thank you. Um, so, um, my life as an editor, I thought I'd call it that because I wanted to give you a very broad overview of what my life was like while I was working as an editor. Um, so, it, using the past tense there, um, I have to say I'm still working as an editor, but I'm no longer um, working for a company. I'm now freelance. Um, I was with Penguin for over 11 years, and um, for me that feels like a very long time. I think it's probably sort of longer than I spent at secondary school, longer than anything else I'd ever done in my life. Um, and I think over the course of that time, I probably became quite institutionalised. Um, that's at least how I'm seeing it now that as a free person in charge of myself, I'm looking back and seeing that um, I was definitely a very penguin person. And in a way, I still am. I realise that I've come with my um, penguin book, um, a, uh, penguin bag, sorry. Uh, HH is the name of the imprint, uh, Hamish Hamilton, that I worked for um, when I was at Penguin, um, which is, and I'm, well, I I'm assuming that you all, since you're all publishing students, you know about imprints and all these things. Um, but if there's anything that I say um, that you're not sure about or you want me to clarify, ask me. Um, and I'm very happy to take questions as we go along and I'll also give you time for questions at the end. But yeah, do just um, butt in or put up your hand um, if you want to ask anything. Um, so uh, just coming back to my life as an editor, um, I started off at Penguin in 1999, so last century, which makes it feel even more of a long time ago. Um, I started off as a secretary, which these days doesn't really exist in publishing, um, but in those days still did. In fact, uh, I was just talking with Sally about um, how uh, publishing seems um, quite an antiquated industry in many ways, and it was a long time before publishers really got to grips with technology. And I think that, well, the fact that as a, you could still be a secretary in an editorial department in 1999 and even in 2000, 2001 uh, shows that they're quite um, yeah they're not very with it um, but happily now secretaries don't really exist in that way in publishing um, and most editors publishing directors can write their own emails which wasn't the case at all at the time and actually as a secretary a lot of my job consisted of um, taking taking the handwritten notes or handwritten letters of my um, boss who was a publishing director and um, typing them up as an email for him or even actually he got onto emails, but first of all, it was just as a typewritten letter, which I then put in a big blotter book, um, which he then signed with his fountain pen. So, you know, that's only, uh, well, 11 and a half years ago. Um, but yes, things are a little bit different now. Um, my subtitle there, Misconceptions, Mistakes and Rewards, um, are sort of three things that came to me as I was trying to think of how I could um, distill those 11 and a half years. Um, Misconceptions, I think, 
um, <coughs> something that you might all know because you're all publishing students, but the thing about being an editor is that editing is not actually your day job. Your day job is sitting at a computer and spending a lot of time writing emails. Um, the editing bit actually comes mostly in the evenings, in the mornings before you go to work and at the weekends. Uh, does that come as news or do you know that? <laughs> it's a pretty full-on job. Um, certainly in the kind of publishing that I was in and still am in a sense, uh, trade publishing, um, you know, I never got a chance to sit at my desk and read and yet I had a hell of a lot of reading to do. Um, so that's very, well, basically you have to commit. Um, so if you don't feel like spending your evenings well, some of your evenings. I mean, I also did have a life. I did go out, you know, <laughs> I'm human. Um, but you have to be prepared to put, put in that extra work. Um, so misconceptions is just to say, um, yeah, we don't, as an editor, you probably won't spend your day at a, um, in a comfy chair reading books. Uh, you will spend it at a computer uh, writing emails and doing other, uh, well, the project management side of making books. Uh, mistakes. Um, I thought uh, I should use that as one of my three words to say that um, often in publishing it felt that uh, there were mistakes around every corner, mistakes of every kind. Basically if humans are involved there are going to be mistakes. Um, now publishing um, is obviously, well commissioning, let's say, is um, it's not a science, it's always a gamble. And there, there are all, well, many of the books that you commission won't go on to become bestsellers. So you could say, you could class those as mistakes. Um, in fact, the um, one thing that I was very impressed with, with um, my, one of the people I used to work with, Tom Weldon, who's now CEO of Penguin, um, is that he was? He felt that you had to be very, very open about your mistakes. He once um, commissioned for a lot of money a biography by the Appleton sisters. Um, do you know, do you all know who they are? Yeah, yeah good. I did, at the time I didn't, um, and uh, he thought this was going to go on to be a great best-selling book. He worked on the commercial side at the time, and um, it flopped. And Editors all have mistakes like that, that you could call skeletons in their cupboards, but actually it's nicer to be open about them and to say, you know, you commission a book, it's not a success. In a sense, it's a mistake, but in another sense, it's part of the gamble. Um, other mistakes in publishing uh, around, as I say, every corner. Um, in a book, it's very rare to find no typo at all. Um, do you all enjoy spotting typos in books you read? <laughs> yes. <laughs> they always get through. I think um, partly uh, this is to do, of course, with the fact that we're all, you know, humans make mistakes. Um, but at every, well, until recently, for example, when a book was um, copy edited, a um, typesetter would then be putting in those corrections. Um, every time you put in a correction, it's possible for another mistake to creep in. So there are all sorts of mistakes that creep in. Um, some of them a lot worse than others. Um, whenever we had uh, a new book that would arrive in its finished form, there's a certain uh, anxiety about opening the box with the books because you know, well, you're smiling with recognition, you know that there are all sorts of things can go wrong. Um, 
I remember on a Simon Jenkins book, on the back cover by a photo of him, it said Stuart Jenkins, that kind of thing. <laughs> or opening a book and you find that the printer has inadvertently put in um, a piece of another book. I mean, you know, those are bad examples, but it all happens. Uh, I remember one Alain de Botton book where um, Penguin on the, um, you know, one of those first early pages in the prelims uh, was spelt P-E-N-G-I-U-N. Um, so, and that's actually, I can see how that happened because uh, you don't, e you know, you hardly read the word penguin. You see it, you think you read it right, but actually, you know, looking close, more closely, it's wrong. Uh, so mistakes were everywhere and it felt sometimes as if we were kind of firefighting mistakes that could come in at, um, at every point, every stage of the process. Um, rewards is basically to say um, it's all worth it. Um, in the end, you're, as, a, as an editor, you're working with books. Um, books are wonderful. Books, you know, if that's what you want to work with, then it's all worthwhile. And um, uh, although the money rewards aren't great, which I'm sure you all know, um, it's, uh, it's a wonderful job. And working with authors um, is, well, it's incredibly rewarding. So all worthwhile. So basically, um, yeah, my life as, as an editor has been a good one and still is. So, oh well, in fact, I uh, forgot to move on my slide, so there you go. <laughs> right, a book. What is it? Um, at this point, I'm going to um, be very modern, get out my mobile phone and read to you um, a, um, a page, or not a page, um, a first paragraph from a book. And um, if you know what book it is, um, let's hope this works. Maybe I was being too modern. Access denied. Session has expired. <laughs> My first mistake. Right, I shall get out a copy of the book, but I shall hide it so that you can't see what it is. Um, very crafty. Oh, in fact, here we are. Um, oh, no! No, no, we can't see it. You can't see it. Okay, good. A modesty board, that's called, isn't it? So, very good. Um, right, so if you recognise what this book is from, please shout out. Skippy and Ruprecht are having a donut eating race one evening when Skippy turns purple and falls off his chair. Skippy yes! Well done. Uh, right, you win the first of the, um, my books. Oh, someone there who said it. Who wins it? Now, I presume that if you recognise what it was from, you've read it. No, actually. Oh, well, that's perfect. I've been meaning to buy it. Um, I was going to say, if you had read it, I would still give it to you to pass on. <laughs> <laughs> What's going on over there? Nothing. No. <laughs> I'm always in the centre of that. You would? Nothing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, Skippy Dice is a book I um, was very closely involved with for a long time while I was at um, Penguin. So, um, it's going to be coming back up in, in, um, in a minute. Um, and I have, as I said, two other copies to give away, so two, there will be two more lucky people. Um, now that's the first answer to what is it, it's Skippy Dies. Um, second um, thing I want to say is a book, what is it, that has got obviously another deeper meaning. Um, and when I tried to think before coming here tonight, what is a book, I would say um, basically it's a piece of writing neatly packaged or beautifully or not necessarily beautifully packaged but packaged in a way 
that it becomes an appealing object. Um, I know obviously with ebooks that's all changing, but would you agree generally with that comment? Is that has anyone got a better definition of a book? Any takers for trying that? No. Okay. Um, packaging, as I as a packaging, to say it becomes a book, um, is as I'm sure you know, and as I'm sure you've learnt on your courses, uh, an incredibly important thing in publishing, and a lot to do with being an editor is having the vision to see how you can make a piece of writing into an object that people will buy. Um, now I'm going to remember to to keep going with my slides and switch on to the next slide and you will see a uh, picture of a book cover without the words on it. I'm going to give you um, sort of 10 or 20 seconds to think about what kind of book it might be. Um, you can do this uh, with your neighbour, with your partner or the person next to you or on your own if you prefer. Um, I'm then going to switch to the next slide and I want you to do uh, the same. Think about what kind of a book it might be. Um, I mean, is it literary? commercial um, are you shall I can I just check are you familiar with the idea of sort of literary and commercial as a spectrum that's what we talk about in publishing um, also who the market might be as in uh, women men age range etc um, and then we'll go through them together um, I've just realized I don't know how to go backwards on the slides but someone I'm sure will be able to tell me oh perfect okay so I shall now go on to the first slide. And oh, if you know uh, what the book is, if you recognise it, don't don't shout out at the moment. Just keep it to yourself. But <laughs> useful if you do know. Next one. Oh, I know that. <laughs> 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 
So, um, ideas on this one. If anyone knows what it is, don't shout it out yet. Uh, literary or commercial? Commercial. Commercial, okay. Um, what sort of market? Women. Women. Women, okay. Fiction or non-fiction? Fiction. 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 Okay, why do you think non-fiction? Because it looks too clinical to be... It's not a very attractive or a very appealing cover to walk into a shop and go, oh, I want to read that book. It's more book you would go and find. Right. non-fiction style, you would want to go and find. Okay, that's interesting. That's a good point. Okay, so does anyone actually know what it is? No? Okay. Um, I won't tell you right now. We'll wait till we see it. Um, next one. Literary? Commercial? Literary? Okay, women or men? Okay. Uh, do you find it attractive? <laughs> Appealing? Yeah? Okay. Yeah. Um, again, don't say if you know what it is. Um, literary? Commercial? Commercial Young Adult? Okay. Yeah. Um, would you buy a book that looked like that? No? Okay, interesting. <laughs> Uh, what about this one? Would you buy that? Yeah? Okay. Right. Good. Um, and do you think that's, um, would you say that's a commercial cover? Yeah. Okay. Uh, what sort of book is this? Do you think? What? Travel, literary travel. Okay, very good. Yeah. That's a slightly easier one, isn't it? Because you're right, it is. Um, very commercial. Men or women? Men. Men. Yeah. Uh, I realise that um, you know talking about markets, saying men, women, uh, it's all very sort of crude. But in fact, I mean that's I suppose the way the world. Well, no, I won't, don't really want to say the world works that way. But in marketing, yes, there are those generalise that you have to generalise in the end about you know who your market is especially on the very commercial side I have to say I didn't work on the commercial side at all Hamish Hamilton um, is a very literary imprint but um, um, I suppose I saw enough of it to kind of get an idea of how it works um, is this appealing? no no? no? 
Okay. Literary or commercial? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, young market or older? Young. Okay. I presume most of you probably recognise this cover. Um, literary or commercial? Literary. literary right. Uh, a good cover, do you think? Would it draw you draw you in? Yeah. 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 Okay. This one would that draw you in? Not really. Not really. Okay. Uh, commercial. It's difficult. Okay. And this last one, which is, I think, probably very easy. Yeah. Commercial. Commercial. Women or men. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Right, I shall move on to the next slide, and you will see um, some of the books and what they are. So, Alain de, this one, Alain de Botton, okay. Pleasures and Sorrows of Work. Um, I have to say, with Alain de Botton, um, the covers were always, I mean, it's a, they were always we thought long and hard about them. They were very difficult to kind of get, a, you know, basically you had to get, they had to be appealing, they had to show what the book, um, something of the book, but at the same time, um, I mean, in a way, the Alain de Botton books, um, many of them have the same feel, and that's what, you know, you're, you're trying to appeal to people who will have read him before and carry on with the, the sort of the branding <coughs> of it. Um, Second one, um, Revenge of the Mooncake Vixen. Um, in a way, um, I could say this was, I won't exactly call this a mistake, but um, it's a book that I commissioned and that we sold very few copies of, but uh, it's a wonderful book. Uh, if the world was different, everyone would have bought a copy. Um, <laughs> but sadly, it was, a, it was a tough one. And I, well, there were a team of us at Penguin who were completely behind it, but that just wasn't enough and we just couldn't get the momentum behind it. Um, it's a very literary book, very beautiful. Marilyn Chin is an American poet, uh, a Chinese-American poet, um, and it's wonderful. Um, oh, yeah. Did you do many um, cover changes? With that one? Yeah. We um, changed it slightly for the paperback, and in fact I'll come on to talking about sort of transformations between hardback and paperback. Um, what we did for the paperback, and I haven't unfortunately got an image of it, but we took uh, one, well, we took the fox, we changed it slightly, um, and that became kind of the main image on the cover. Um, that's actually, with transformations from hardback to paperback, that often happens, that you sort of take one thing from a hardback cover and just make it a sort of, I suppose, a less busy, just a, a book that's going to grab your attention, that's just slightly more commercial packaging. Um, fraction of the whole. So, did anyone actually know that that was fraction oh. of the whole? Yes. Well, I I didn't know it was, but I knew they were the same. Right, the same book. Yeah. Is that a question? Mm -hmm. No, just about yeah, fraction of the whole. Um, so, fraction of the whole. Steve Toltz is an um, Australian uh, writer that probably some of you will know of or know and have read. Um, that's an interesting, I'd say, an interesting transformation from hardback, which is that one, to paperback. Um, often, for the conversation about a paperback cover, the transformation um, from hardback to paperback, is about making the um, the paperback cover more human. So, you know, here it was. We need to find an image with a um, a person on it. 
um, obviously a boy um, and a boy who's looking at you um, definitely has a power that this one doesn't yes Okay, um, basically, when we think of a hardback market as being um, people who are happy to, um, who are going to pay, say, sixteen ninety nine, probably they have heard of the book, um, they go into the bookshop knowing this is the book I want to get, maybe they read a review of it or someone recommended it, and they are, uh, they're kind of committed buyers um, in that they probably knew they wanted it before they walked into the bookshop. It's quite rare to walk into a bookshop and to think, oh, I'll get a nice expensive hardback today. Um, I don't know what I'll get, I'll take a punt. So it's probably someone who um, uh, either has read other books by, say, Steve Dotz, although Steve Dotz, for Steve Dotz this was his first book, so that, that doesn't work to say that, but you know, someone who is already a fan of that author uh, or has a reason for wanting to get that book. Um, so basically they are coughing up a bit more money. Um, with a paperback, um, if you think of three for twos at Waterstones, which obviously that now they don't exist anymore, they've changed their, their way of marketing books, but people go into a bookshop, browsing, um, they are going in there, looking at the cover, turning over, looking at the blurb, and they are um, buying spontaneously. They're deciding what they want for their holiday or whatever. So it's, um, yeah, it's a, it can be a very spontaneous decision to buy it. Obviously, they're probably, um, you know, if it's in a three for two, it might be the third book of their choice, and you are trying to get their attention just with a cover and with the blurb. Um, interestingly, while um, I mentioned blurbs, for hardbacks, uh, we editors um, wrote our own hardback blurbs, meaning the bit on the back, uh, or in the case of a hardback, on the front flap. Um, but we didn't write our paperback blurbs. We had a copywriter, who's a uh, wonderful man called Colin Brush, who worked at, uh, still works at Penguin, who wrote the um, uh, paperback blurbs for us. He, that was kind of what he did. That was his um, area of expertise. He um, knew how to grab attention very, very quickly. You know, that's basically what a blurb has to do on a paperback because again, they are, um, they are not committed buyers and you can sway them with a cover image or with a, a blurb uh, in a way that with a hardback, it, it's less likely. You know, probably they already know they want it. Um, the travel book that we looked at, so Paul through Ghost Train to the Eastern Star. Um, so nothing very original there. You know, I can remember the conversation in the cover meeting for that one. Very simple. We want to train on it. We want it to be beautiful. We want it to sort of suggest faraway places. Uh, there we go. Easy. Yes. I noticed you've used the same type probably exactly on the yeah. back the paperback version of the Tots book. Yes. Is that deliberate? Or yes. Is it, is it a general policy, or do you, did you just do it on this particular? Um, I think quite a few. I suppose if there's a um, um, <coughs> the idea was a sort of slight recognition factor. Okay. Yeah, an identity thing. Um, so yeah, very different cover, but you're right, same typography. Um, I would say it happens quite often, but not always. Yeah, so no, no hard and fast rule on that. Right, a few more. Clive Cussler. There you go. And Skippy Dies, that's actually was the, um, the trade paperback. So, do you, do you all know the expression trade paperback? Yeah. 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 Good. Um, 
now Mosin Hamid, here we've got another transformation. That was our hardback. Um, we actually sold um, not that many copies in hardback, and it was um, it's actually a big success story, Reluctant Fundamentalist. After we published the hardback, um, I think we were all, all um, a bit dis well. Reviews were great, but a bit disappointed about sales. It wasn't really it hadn't really happened for the book. Um, Mosin Hamid was sort of wondering, you know, is that it kind of thing? And then it got shortlisted for the Booker, um, and uh, suddenly it took off, and it was great. And obviously, I mean, for literary books, especially fiction, but also non-fiction, uh, prizes are everything. You know, because a prize doesn't just mean, say, winning the booker, getting however many thousand pounds. It means that suddenly all the bookshops will take your book, you'll, it will be well displayed, you know, people will see it, know about it, and talk about it. Um, so for Mosin Hamid, that, um, yeah, it really changed everything. And um, um, we... I'm trying to remember the exact order of things, but basically it had been shortlisted for the booker. We then set about designing the paperback cover and suddenly, you know, in our minds we had, a, we had to th really think about a wide market for the book, about how to really get it out there and make it look very commercial, but at the same time true to its identity as quite a serious um, literary novel. How many of you have read The Reluctant Fundamentalist? Right, few, good, good. And it's a wonderful book, isn't it? It's difficult for you to say anything else if I put it like that. But thank you for agreeing with me. Um, right, this one. Um, not from the bit of Penguin that I worked in. Um, but again, a very, um, well, uh, yeah, appealing to a certain market. I think, um, I mean, this is going to be generalising a bit, but to explain the difference between literary publishing and commercial publishing, basically, commercial publishing there is a market out there, you are trying to reach it with your books. With literary publishing, the book is what it is, and it tries to find a market. Um, but definitely with commercial publishing, the idea is there is a market there. Um, I've actually just started reading a book, um, which you may have heard of. Um, do any of you know this book? Have any of you read anything about it? It's been, yeah? Uh, didn't the author hate the picture that they chose? <coughs> exactly. Mm. Yes. Yes. And I'm um, I'm speaking in a um, on a panel on Thursday in London about with the author and with a few other people about uh, it's the cover content debate I think they're calling it. Um, so I've, I realise I need to read it before Thursday. And actually, I f I have to say I felt quite odd reading this on the train this morning. Um, it's not the sort of book I usually well. So it's not the sort of cover I usually have in my hands, as in um, legs. Um, and it does seem that legs are just, um, well, apparently they appeal to women, but I can't say they've ever appealed to me. But, um, yeah, it seems to be what, uh, well, chiclet, I suppose it's a very it's a sort of um, shortcut way of saying this is chiclet, this is going to be a nice, easy read, um, a nice, easy feminine read. Um, I, I've only got that far, so I can't yet say what I think of it, but I can... Basically, the author <coughs> was angry that this is a book with a serious social message about women and men, and yet she's been packaged as chiclet. Um, interesting. Um, and uh, I'd, I'd say one thing about covers is um, generally publishers have the last say, but certainly at Penguin we always wanted our authors to be happy with a cover it, you know, it's a terrible thing to 
um, to disregard an author's wishes and to uh, bring out a book that they're not going to be proud of. But often it was a difficult process and as a publisher um, you feel you know um, how a book will be um, received in bookshops and you know how how the book will go down with the, the reading public. Um, you have a sense of how bookshops will treat a book and obviously you need your bookshops to want to display the book and um, basically an author is getting an, an advance from a publisher for the publisher to then do its job and I think that's where the the conflict comes in that publishers in a way have to get on with their job which is knowing the market knowing how to package a book an author obviously has a very well personal connection with the book and will find it often finds it very difficult to let go of that um, let go of their book and let something go on the front of it um, it's a difficult one and I think it will always be a difficult one um, uh, and I can see, you know, with Polly Courtney, I can see why she's unhappy. I can also see where HarperCollins, who at the, um, it's Avon, which is a list, an imprint at HarperCollins. I can see what, you know, how it happened. Um, yeah, so, but I'm, well, cover content, I think it will, you know, it's a debate that can run and run. Um, so, moving on, um, just a few transformations here. Um, in fact, I'd be interested to know, um, on your courses, I don't know if I'm expecting answers from the staff or students, but is it something you talk about very much, the sort of cover and content and packaging? Yeah, does it form a, a part of the... To some extent, but yeah. To some extent. Yeah. Right, okay. So is this interesting for you? Yeah, yeah? okay, good. Um, so, Ali Smith, um, very literary writer, a wonderful writer. Um, she has very definite ideas about her cover. Um, uh, we, uh, for the hardback of this one, the accidental, um, we had what I would say is a very, very literary um, cover, very beautiful object, but it's in a bookshop. It's not going to, um, it's not going to sell thousands of copies, uh, but very beautiful. It's actually from a Derek Jarman image. Um, for the paperback. We still had um, an artwork because this is actually a Wim William Eggleston photograph and that's something that Ali Smith was always very, um, she didn't want photo shoots for her books, she wanted um, a sort of an artwork. So this was a William Eggleston photograph and it actually became what I would say is a very commercial cover. The book um, was chosen by the Daily Mail Book Club as one of their books and because of that it got into the supermarkets. So you could buy this Ali Smith book in the supermarkets. Now, how many of you here have read Ali Smith? A few of you? Would you say she's a literary or commercial writer? Yeah. Literary, very, very literary. Um, I have a friend who is not a serious reader, who's definitely kind of reads Chiclet and other um, uh, books, basically, as for entertainment. Nothing wrong with that at all. Um, she bought this book and she came to me. Um, she Basically, she was disappointed. She felt tricked because she thought she was getting a commercial book. She probably bought it at Tesco's um, and, you know, she got to page two and realised that this actually needed, you know, it's not just entertainment, you have to think a bit, you know, it's about the writing. Um, so I, in a way, although we sold a lot of copies, I can see that for her anyway, this friend of mine, that backfired. You know, if you put a, a cover on that um, is going to give people the wrong impression, that's not necessarily a good thing. But we did, we, I mean, it's... 
the book did very well and I and it's a beautiful cover um, uh, but it did make some people think it was more commercial than it is next one all right well um, Steve Holtz we've talked about that so I won't go into that again um, I think our paperback cover was very successful. By that time, of course, the book had been shortlisted for the Booker, so like The Reluctant Fundamentalist, it really had a boost, um, and it did very well, and it, you know, it's still selling. Um, this is just a transformation that happened actually before publication. Um, Hello Mum was a book that um, um, was part of the Quick Read series, which is a Quick Read series. It's a series for emerging writers, so sorry, not writers, readers, readers um, who don't usually read. They are probably about, um, well, about 15,000 words, so that's very short, so it was probably sort of 60 pages. Um, we um, came up with this cover. Then the organizers of, of Quick Reads, which, you know, all sorts of publishers um, produce books for Quick Reads, they said, no, this isn't quite right. We had to do some rethinking before publication and <clears throat> we came up with what then looks like a completely different book. Um, but actually, I can see that this book, you know, that cover is actually shows the grittiness of the book, and um, it did well. <coughs> right, interesting formats. Skippy dies, we are back to. Um, I brought along a copy to show you. Um, this is my only one, so sadly I can't give this one away. Um, this is how the book first came out. Um, hope I can get them out the um, out the box. Um, um, Paul Murray uh, had, has written one book before this book. Uh, it was called Evening of Long Goodbyes. It came out in 2003. And um, by the time we published this in, I think it was 2009, but you could correct me there, um, we were worried that people would have forgotten about him uh, we needed to do something special. It was a very long book. Um, and so we came up with this idea of doing three books in one. So we did it in a box. Um, oh, there's my reviews that have fallen out. It got fantastic reviews, so I felt I had to keep them. Um, we only published a few thousand of these, which means, um, well, they've become, well, for me, it feels like a collector's item, so I'm hanging on to it. Um, and uh, it got a lot of attention, which was a good thing. The thing about literary publishing is that you, well, as well as prizes, you rely a lot on reviews. And um, this did get attention. I mean, it got reviews. And a lot of the reviews brought up the fact of an interesting format. So we, we definitely feel it was worthwhile doing. Um, we then wanted to reprint. <coughs> it would have been too expensive to keep printing these. So we then went to trade paperback, um, which means that it, uh, it had um, this format, trade paperback, and then the um, B format paperback. Just thinking, did we actually do it in A or B? Yeah, I think it was a B format. Literary publishing is nearly always B, um, so I'm pretty sure it was a B. Um, now I've got, as I said, another two copies to give away, and I'm going to give a copy away now to the person who can um, guess how many words um, a book of this size would be. Uh, with it, obviously, I'm not expecting you to get it to the word, um, but I'll s if you shout out some numbers and person who comes close, what do you think? 120,000. 
Yeah. You'll get the book. <laughs> <laughs> 5,000. Thank you. Um, now, this book, when it um, came to me, um, uh, came in as a manuscript, was um, a whopping 319,000. Uh, and I remember that number, <coughs> just because it was a very big one. Um, it was a huge manuscript, and the author was um, fully aware of that it needed cutting. And the, um, it took several edits, but we got it down to what feels like a much more reasonable but still very long book, 205,000 words. Um, <coughs> um, now, I realise I should just flick on my screen. So there we are, Skippy Dies by Paul Murray. Um, <coughs> I shall, um, I'm going to use that book, this book, to talk about the um, <coughs> kind of what happens in the publishing process. Um, and I will start, uh, I feel I just kind of jumped to editing there, but I'm going to come back talk about um, the top one, commissioning process. Um, so Paul Murray, as I said, uh, there was a long time before, between the first book and the second book. Um, he had a um, <coughs> two-book deal. Um, he was very lucky. Two-book deals are becoming rarer and rarer. Um, there were two, uh, maybe t ten years ago, even eight years ago, they were still, it was a very common thing. And there were good points for the author. Obviously, if you got a two-book deal, it meant you could relax for a while. You had money, you know, knew you had your second book already, kind of you had your signature advance for it, you knew you were going to get money for it. Um, from the publisher's point of view, if the first book was a success, you knew that you still, you had that next second book by the author. Uh, with Zadie Smith, it was a two-book deal. It meant that after White Teeth was a great success, um, we knew we would be publishing the next one. So from the publisher, it's um, a good thing. From the author, for the author, it's a good thing. Um, also, lots of negatives in that if the first book is not a success, it makes it very difficult for that same publisher to publish the the second book um, the publisher will um, you know even if the editor is still championing away you know saying how wonderful this author is if the sales team have got a bad taste in their mouth from a book um, that didn't really work uh, it makes it very difficult to go out and sell the second book um, often an author will have written a wonderful first book that they spent maybe 10 years writing and then they get completely stuck on the second book and um, the second book just maybe they just had the one book in them, you know, it's that kind of thing that a first book can have everything that they wanted put into it and then there's not much left for the second book and it can be a struggle. And the pressure for an author to have to come up with that second book which is under contract is also, can be quite a negative thing. Um, author, uh, publishers generally are also becoming much more cautious about advances. Um, sort of maybe five years ago, uh, let's say a few more, eight years ago maybe, um, for a really exciting debut novelist, um, hundred thousand pounds advance was not unusual. Now um, they'd be lucky to get twenty thousand, I'd say. I mean, you still get the odd one where they're getting a huge amount, but generally advances fell right down, and actually they feel much more realistic. The pressure is kind of off from the publisher's point of view, off in a way from the for the author, although obviously they need to live so. Hopefully they've got other means of income. But, you know, if the book works, then the royalties will start coming in. But anyway, Paul Murray, all those years ago in 2001, when we signed up the first book, An Evening of Long Goodbyes, and the second book, uh, he got a two-book deal. He was um, 
very lucky and it worked for us in that um, you know the second book has been just wonderful um, but it did take um, well it's I feel that you know imaginative publishing is what we needed to get the second book out there um, so the manuscript as I said uh, 319,000 words down to 205,000 words um, uh, I should say at this point that um, in the days when, in fact, when I was editing this, uh, we were still editing on paper um, and tr using track changes, as we were discussing, is, a, is actually quite a recent thing in publishing. Um, I think I first started using them probably only about, um, well, last year, I think. Um, so, yeah, and a lot of editors are still publishing, uh, are still editing on paper. Um, uh, and... Um, yeah, it's kind of it, it. It's taken a while for editors to start sort of using e-readers and to start embracing technology sort of in the workplace, and at, you know reading for pleasure as well. Um, so the edit, um, as I said before, misconceptions. Um, I didn't edit this at my desk. I edited this actually while I was on holiday, and I can remember <coughs> being in a B and B. Um, staying up late um, and um, spending my whole holiday editing this book. Um, it's, yeah, it's the way it is. Um, it's very nice actually now that I'm, um, I'm freelance, I don't feel I've quite got those pressures on me, uh, but it, you know, it goes with the territory of, of uh, working in that, that environment. Uh, the author, um, Paul Murray is um, a wonderful author. Um, Authors, uh, working with authors is definitely one of the wonderful things about working in publishing. And um, as you can imagine, um, you well, for them, you're often one of the only links with human life outside of their study. Um, and um, uh, you sometimes do feel as if you're a bit of a, you know, uh, well, if you send them an email, you get an email straight back and you realise, oh my God, you're the only human contact they have. Um, <laughs> But um, it's, um, it's one of the most rewarding things about working in publishing is working with, uh, with authors. Oh, there are some authors who are a nightmare to deal with. Um, uh, they're often the very successful ones, not always. Um, uh, but, well, it's, um, they're the good ones to balance that out. Uh, agents. Um, I'm sure you all know that agents are a big part, well, publishing in this country is very much done through agents. Um, it's very rare that we commission a book, um, oh, I should speak in the past tense, that, that while I was at Penguin we would commission a book um, without an agent. In fact, with Paul Murray, we commissioned it, um, he didn't have an agent at the time, but he immediately got an agent, which is what we wanted, in that for us as publishers it's much easier to deal with an author um, if they've got an agent. It feels like a much more um, uh, equal playing field or equal um, relationship uh, if they've got someone who kind of understands the contract on their side. Um, and if things go wrong, having an agent is wonderful because, you know, the agent will be able to be the go-between. So it's definitely not something, to, you know, having an agent is not just to help the author, it's also to help the, agent, uh, help the publisher. Three Lives, this was just to say, um, with uh, Skippy Dies, uh, we did this first version in the box. We then did the trade paperback, and we then did the um, the other, the smaller paperback. Um, each life of a book 
um, gives it another chance. So as I'm sure you know, with a hardback, you hope to get the great reviews. The great reviews you can then put on your paperback. Um, you can get the attention, which then can hopefully translate into sales with the cheaper <laughs> edition. Um, so when people sort of ask, oh, you know, why do we bother having several or two editions, as it normally is, um, it's, you know, uh, it gives the book another chance and another chance to capitalise on what you've managed to, the attention you've managed to get with the hardback. Um, so to recap, um, commissioning process, seeing manuscript through from start to finish, different approaches to editing, ah, oh, different approaches to editing, I should say Paul Murray was a joy to edit, um, other edit, uh, other authors are not. Uh, I had one author who every comment that I um, made in response to his manuscript, he felt the need to write an essay in reply justifying what he had written and why he had written that. Um, I mean to me that's no good because he can't, you know, not all, his readers aren't going to see those essays justifying what he wrote. It's the book has got to stand as it is. Um, and as an as an editor, basically, you are trying to be uh, the best reader you can possibly be, you know, pointing out to the author what doesn't work. Um, I have to say, that author um, disregarded a lot of what I said. Um, the book came out, and I have to also say, we hadn't met face to face because he was in the States. He will remain nameless. Um, um, when the book came out, the reviews picked up on exactly the things I had picked out or picked up on. Uh, there was si I um, I was in touch with him, but he was signed up quite a long time, and then he emailed me and uh, said sorry, which I thought was amazing, <laughs> and I didn't say I told you so, but <laughs> uh, it was a, a kind of for me it was a lesson in how this isn't what the editor author relationship should be. You know, it should be a very positive thing with authors, you know, taking on board what an editor has to say to make the book as good as it can possibly be. Basically, we're all in it together. We all want the books to be as good as they can possibly be. And for an author to take against being edited, um, it becomes a very negative process. But I would say nine times out of 10, editing was always a very positive process. If an author has been working on their own on a manuscript for years and years, generally they're delighted to have an outside person read their book. Um, dealing with authors and agents generally a pleasure. Launching a book into the world. Um, obviously this is uh, mostly a sort of publicity and sales job but as an editor obviously you are the linchpin with all the departments. Um, I'm sure you kind of know that how a lot of being an editor is, is the sort of project managing the book. Um, so you are always um, you're always thinking about that and you know even me talking tonight about Skippy Dies um, you know I'm hoping well, I feel I'm, champ I'm still championing the book. I've left Penguin, but I'm st I can't help championing a book that I, uh, that I loved, that I worked on. And um, the kind of the launching the book goes on and on, trying to spread the word. Um, and an editor's, a lot of an editor's job in-house is actually to kickstart the positive feelings about a book, to get, you know, if an editor talks positively about a book, you hope that the sales team will talk positively to the bookshops who will talk positively positively to customers and it's a kind of it goes on and on and it you know kind of the love has to start in-house uh, from the editor um, and I think that's all rewards ah, I have one more book that's reminded me <laughs> so um, one more book to give out which will make my bags lighter on my way back home um, 
we've got five minutes for questions. So the best question in the next five minutes, uh, we'll get this book. <laughs> so, any questions? <coughs> Otherwise, I'll have to take the book home with me. <laughs> yes. Um, there isn't, um, and often it happens that it takes a very, very long time. Um, generally, as long as there was still communication between editor and author, or editor <coughs> and agent, um, <coughs> that's fine. That was fine. Uh, sometimes it did get ridiculous, you know, sort of uh, two decades, I think, passed sometimes. Even with a book that was com a non-fiction book that was commissioned on proposal, it could be, say, a decade before the book was delivered. Um, as long as you knew they were working on it, that was fine. But, you know, sometimes it did get to the point where you had to start getting your money back. You know, if you realise that basically this author has moved on to other things, is not interested in writing the book, um, you would start trying to get the money back, which was, could be a painful process, which was another good reason to have an agent. If there's an agent, you know, the agent will hopefully deal with that side of things. Uh, yes, over there, and then we'll come to you. Yeah. Um, over the 11 years that you were at Penguin, what would you say was possibly the, the sort of the biggest change to your role as an editor? What has it really changed that much? I mean, we hear about the role of the editor quite yeah. a lot. Would you say? Um, mm, um, I think it's taking on the whole ebook thing. Um, uh, I think for a lot of editors, including me, it was a very hard. Uh, you had to sort of rethink, rethink what a book is and rethink how you're going to get it to people. Um, every, you know, everyone within Penguin, everyone within every publishing company has to rethink, um, rethink their role. You know, even publicity have to rethink, well, this isn't just about e-books, but just about the way that you market a book. You know, now there's so much that's, um, you know, social media. Um, so I think dealing with all that um, and suddenly having to come out of the um, um, paradigm of uh, hardback paperback. Um, I have to say, thinking about that um, and the fact that you know now hardbacks sell very few copies, and hardbacks have to be even more beautiful for people to buy them. Um, it's something that we we thought a lot about formats and why is it that we're in this idea of you have to have a hardback and a paperback? But it was especially within a big company, it's quite difficult for the whole company to turn around and kind of embrace new ideas um, and change that and. The problem is you're not just changing the company ethos about that, you're changing, you have to change, say, how reviewers see a paperback. Reviewers for a long time felt the books worth reviewing would be in hardback. Therefore, as a publisher, you think, think oh, it's too much of a risk to just publish this straight into paperback because it won't get reviewed, in which case you won't get your lovely <coughs> reviews to, to plaster on a new edition if you're even going to do a second edition of a paperback. Um, so it's kind of, you had to change the whole way the whole publishing industry was working. That led to like an increase of the amount of ARCs you're sending out pre-published. Um, uh, <coughs> sometimes, um, but in a way, also we were becoming quite. Um, with some books, you decided that ARCs or uh, proofs, as we um, some well maybe here do you all call them ARCs? Yeah, um, uh, proofs, as in you know a copy of a book um, that you're making before the real book comes out. Um, so some books you feel it's not actually the right way to get people interested and we would just do, say, a, um, one chapter which would be bound up in a little, nice little sample package. Um, so, and well, budgets were being cut, sort of marketing budgets, so that was actually a reason for, for doing fewer ARCs. Your question. 
Um, I was actually just interested more in, <coughs> in the transition from that you made from working in-house to sort of being freelance now, what the process was. Okay. Um, um, <coughs> basically, I worked at Penguin until March of this year, and um, I then... Uh, you're going to hear a bit of my life story now. <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, um, I'm half French, and I've been feeling for a long time I needed to spend some time in France, and I suddenly realised that this year was the right time to go. Um, I went with my son, who is four, who hadn't yet started school, but was about to, and I'd been speaking French to him. Ever since, I'll make this very quick, because it is my life story, um, <laughs> or his. Uh, I wanted him to be bilingual, and he was starting to resist speaking French, um, and realised that speaking English was much easier. We went to France for a term. He's come back fluent. Um, he was at school there. And um, I, I realised it was kind of all came together that this was the right time to stop, um, go to France, come back and freelance. I think to go from a full-time job in a... or Actually, I was four days a week at that point. Um, but a four-day-a-week job in a, uh, you know, in-house to being freelance is quite a difficult transition. I think mentally it would have been quite hard for me and to sort of explain to people what, why am I doing this when I've got a lovely job, you know, editor at Hamish Hamilton, lovely job, um, to then go freelance. But to sort of do something else and then come back, which would give me the time to work out exactly how I was going to set myself up as a freelancer. Uh, so I came back in August and I started um, freelancing in September. Um, and I have to say, um, it feels like a really good decision. It's great being in charge of myself. Um, but at the same time, um, I think it's very difficult to go freelance when you haven't got the experience of working within the company. Although I've just been speaking to Sally, who did do that. Um, um, but I'd say, yeah, as sort of young people who are going out there getting jobs, get a job within a company, um, within a publishing house. Um, and then when you've got your experience, that's the time to go freelance. And I, now the work that I'm getting <coughs> as an editor is all through my existing contacts. You know, I couldn't do it if I didn't know agents and publishers and editors. Uh, there are lots of books that I feel didn't do what they should have done. Often it's quite difficult to think how. Uh, there's a book, in fact, the first book I commissioned was a book called The World to Come by an American author called Dara Horn. And um, uh, a wonderful book. Um, I kind of fell in love with it as soon as I read it. It's American. Um, published it over here. Um, almost nothing happened. I mean, literally. And... Uh, Publishing for both the editor and the uh, author can be quite anticlimactic. You know, you work on this book for months and months. It's a long process. The book comes out, almost no reviews, nothing really happens. Um, I think one of the problems with Dara Hall and The World to Come um, was, um, well, I think the title's not great, The World to Come. What do you think of that as a title? Does it interest you? Does it? Okay, okay. Uh, it was about um, uh, it was a family story basically, but a, li a very literary book, but a family story. Um, I kind of you know if you think about um, well, a lot of literary books have titles that immediately give you a sense of what this book's going to be about. I mean, commercial books as well have that. Uh, for me, I think uh, not that I could have ever changed the title; it had already been published in the states. But you know, when I looked at both our package actually and our title and the title of the book, somehow it didn't grab didn't grab attention. Yeah, did, it didn't. did it sell well in the States? Or? Uh, not great, no. But she's a wonderful writer, Dara Horn, so, you know, do read her. <laughs> I don't want to put you off. <laughs> yeah, last question. Thank you for your interesting talk. And I want you to ask about the cover design. Because when I work in a magazine, I always argue with my designer about a cover, and 
I never. Uh, sometimes go well. Sometimes really, the meeting is horrible, and we yeah. cannot form a conclusion for right. the conference. So I want to know how. How about your experience? Can you communicate well with your designer, or you always quarrel each other? Um, we were pretty good at <laughs> communicating well with our designer. It was our art director who would come to to the meeting with the ideas, um, and. As a um, in because we were the literary side, I think we were a lot more accommodating of each other, the art director of us and us of the art director, than on the commercial side, where they are really first of all they have to, you know, their numbers are much bigger, as in how many they're going to sell, how much they paid for the book, um, <coughs> so the pressure is really on for them, and they know, you know, they have to reach their market. Uh, for so I know that actually their meetings, well, reports came back of people in tears, so I know that they became pretty heated. Uh, we never had tears in our meeting. And it was, um, yeah, it was generally good, but sometimes the process would go on for a long time with the art di director coming back each week with a new design that just didn't feel quite right. Um, so it could be, well, it could go on for a while. And actually, I didn't say this when I was talking about Skippy Dies, but we came up with a paperback cover that we all kind of liked. It had a boy on the front, uh, you know, it was a photo, photo shoot um, that um, had happened to come up with this cover. Um, and it just wasn't quite right and the author didn't like it and in the end we had to say to the art director no we can't go with it and we had to go back to using um, elements of the um, elements of that cover which then obviously got translated into that um, uh, and I think in the end you know this was absolutely the right decision um, but it's yeah so the, to answer your question in, in, uh, in brief way um, we did have, there were difficulties in, you know, everyone getting what they thought was the right cover. Um, but on the literary side, it's not nearly as bad as on the commercial <coughs> side, where tensions really do run high and where the cover has to absolutely hit the right spot for the customers and for the, for example, for Tesco. They have to know if they, you know, with a Clive customer, you have to know that Tesco's are going to approve of that cover. So there's a lot riding on it. Okay, I think we've kind of run out of time. Um, I think for the, uh, this last copy of the book, um, the first question over there, I think we'll get it, because I think that's a, a good question about something that we hadn't really covered. So there you go. That's it, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.